Ladies and gentlemen, Greg Proops. Wow. Thank you very much for coming out, ladies and gentlemen, once again to visit the Greg Proops Film Club as we convene here in the salubrious confines here in the gracious Tennessee district of Los Angeles on Fairfax Avenue at L.A.'s 13th most fabulous movie palace where cinema is held in high regard. The Cine Family right here on Fairfax across from Fairfax High School. Welcome, tall person in the white coat, to our show tonight. Has anyone noticed that the parking across the street from here is unbelievably specious and that no one really knows whether it exists or not? You pull into the high school parking lot and there's a dude there and he's wearing a uniform and there's a sign. Uh, But really, honestly, couldn't it be anyone? I could put a uniform on and wear a sign over there and just put up a sign that says three. Also, the sum three dollar parking. Most places in L.A. are, are always odd sums, right? It's always seven. Sometimes it's like 850, which is a really Has anyone ever parked valet in this fucking room before? Wow. Okay. You know, this could be the shortest film club ever and we could not show the movie. How's that fucking grab you? Yeah, I will use threats and dick slap you. That's how my fucking show works. Don't you want us to like you and gain our trust by being genial and shit? I have friends. I'm here to hold a fucking seminar on how great I am. How's that fucking grab you? But we're laid back in movie seats and we're kind of high and we came to see a Hitchcock film. Tough shit. I have an orange glowing cat on my fucking desk that says otherwise. Uh, any case, uh, the parking across the street, sometimes you can park for free if you come here early enough or just park far enough away from the guy. <laughs> Just like come in the other entrance and park it down the other end and you walk by him. He just goes, hey, how's it going? It's like, that's not someone who works in a parking lot because someone who works in a parking lot is going to go like fucking it's three dollars no matter what and whatnot at three dollars. Really? Wow. I would raise the parking fee. You okay? Wow, there's not a security situation, is there? Hey, brother. Uh, I would raise it to 15 or 20, I think, just to class up the neighborhood a little. I'm joking, of course. We're next to, what is it, the banana? uh, Banana bungalow. The banana bungalow here? Which is, is it the sister banana bungalow to the one up on Highland that I've never seen anyone but weird, freaky people from the 70s coming out of? Do you know that one when you drive down a bar? In any case, uh, tonight's movie is Alfred Hitchcock's uh, 1944 wartime uh, classic, Lifeboat. And um, uh, uh, Hitchcock had been making pictures for mm, 20 years at this point, around pictures, and it carried on making pictures for another 30 years after this. Uh, This is a black and white thriller. Uh, It takes place all within the confines of a lifeboat, ergo the name. And as we've discussed on the show before, Hitchcock is a director of some skill as far as grabbing the audience, keeping the audience, driving the audience forward, and then driving you wild and and fooling you a thousand million times and then fucking you over. Uh, And that's what makes him great. As I've said on the show, he could have made a movie called like Raft and you'd be riveted by it. He could have made a movie called Suitcase and you'd be like, when's it going to open? Like he really is that good a director. He didn't need CGI. He's awesomely careless with matte shots and stuff like that. This movie doesn't have any special effects other than... And smoke through the whole thing that serves as fog. Um, 
But uh, like if you watch the birds, so when the birds are flying over the town, they're so poorly matted in that you're like, what is that? A space behind the bird? Birds don't fly with a weird empty space behind them. Uh, it, it matters not at all uh, because with him it's plot, 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 and more fucking plot. John Steinbeck wrote this movie. Uh, other guys wrote the screenplay. John Steinbeck wrote the story off an idea from Hitchcock. Now it, it happened during World War II, and I'll explain. And I don't presume your ignorance of World War II, but you have to understand that people listening to this as a podcast, some of whom are 14 years old and are right now uh, crouched underneath a blanket fort with an illicit computer in front of them, Netflixing this movie, and their parents have no idea they're watching Hitchcock. They just know the word cocks in it and therefore Jesus is angry so I have to explain to them what World War II is uh, it's a war that the entire world participated in and when I say the entire world I mean Europe and parts of Asia uh, Yes, the Middle East and Africa were in it too. Uh, did it have to be fought? No, no war has to be fought. That's a whole nother topic for a whole nother show. Uh, but let's get into it now a little bit. Here's the deal. Mm. This is kind of a propaganda film, but it's not a kind of a propaganda film like you would see during World War II. If you see um, Operation Burma or Destination Tokyo or In Which We Serve or any of those kind of movies, um, if you'll pardon the expression, the nips and the krauts uh, are often reduced to a very bold stereotype so that you can hate on them uh, purposefully. And they're often torturers and they smoke cigarettes and they have funny accents and they're evil, evil, evil. And wickedly S&M, which I think spoke to an undercurrent in a American society that directors hadn't really counted on that would come burgeoning forth uh, some 15 years later uh, when American movies took a turn for the pervy and uh, well even a few years after the war let's be frank uh, in any case this movie is a World War II movie but you'll find that uh, the depictions are a little more subtly uh, he doesn't hit you with a hammer every two seconds in this one because he doesn't have to they're in a lifeboat but what I really want to talk about uh, with this picture tonight is the star of this movie who's an actress who's not famous as a movie actress although she made a dozen or more movies including a couple of unbelievable schlocktastic ones uh, the horror movies at the end of her career uh, you may have also seen her on Batman she was also on the Lucy show and uh, did the rounds of all the talk shows in the 60s and stuff her name is Tulula Bankhead and exactly uh, we had a reader here with her movie uh uh, recently we showed Gilda and Rita Hayworth is a wartime pinup girl uh, and um, I, I'm going to do an obituary by the way for Esther Williams when I get to London this week uh, I'm, I'm going to save it for there uh, but, they, but Esther Williams passed this week and, and she is I know uh, Esther Williams is swimming uh, in Aquarius uh, in the heavens tonight Esther Williams invented her own genre of film that's how powerful um, she was as a person. She was a championship uh, swimmer here in Los Angeles. She's from Englewood, so she was always up to no good. And uh, uh, when she was on the high school uh, swim team, they were going to go to the Olympics. The war broke out. I thought you weren't going to eulogize her on this show, Greg. I'll do what I fucking want. Um, and it thanks. In any case, uh, uh, she was so beautiful and she was such a tremendous swimmer and she missed out on two Olympics. Um, she got cast and they brought her to MGM and uh, Louis Meemare said, because uh, uh, Sonia Henney was at uh, 20th, was it? Sonia Henney was an Olympic champion who was an ice skater and they made a series of ice skating musicals. You know, things were so much different in the old days in a lot of ways uh, and in some ways not at all because in 30 years time, if someone gets up here and is talking about Glee the Musical as a movie, 
Exactly. People in, people in 30 years' time are going to be like, really? That was a fucking movie? Yeah, there was a, a deaf kid and a fat kid, and they all came together and did a shitty musical. Um, in the 40s, uh, when Esther was rocking good news, uh, Louis B. Mayer said, melt the ice and make it pretty. And so they made an entire genre around her, which is aqua musicals, musicals that took place in and near the water at all times. Uh, and she was often underwater and appeared to be able to breathe endlessly underwater like Aquaman. You never really see her uncomfortable. She's forever like almost ecstatic while she's underwater. And... Uh, they called her America's Mermaid. In any case, she was, and she was fabulous, and invented synchronized swimming. The reason why synchronized swimming is even a fucking thing in our world is that Esther Williams did it in a million movies. Um, but well, she was not synchronized with other people. She didn't need to be. Uh, Tallulah Bankhead is the star of this picture. She's a stage actress, largely. She was born in Alabama to really rich parents. Her father, uh, William Brockman, uh, her mother, Adelaide Eugenia Bankhead, she took her mother's name. Uh, her mother croaked when she was little, and her father was wicked rich and wealthy and was in the Congress and became secretary, I mean, um, a speaker of the House. Uh, she was um, from Alabama and was a wild child. And from the very beginning, they thought she had ADD because all she wanted to do was pull her dress over her head and run around the fucking room and be the center of attention and shit. Her grandmother threatened to throw cold buckets of water on her to calm her down. Her most um, treasured childhood memory, I think, is her father, what is it? Her father put her on a tabletop and allowed her to sing and dance for a group of friends. Tulula would probably be diagnosed with attention deficit disorder today. Uh, in any case, when she was 15, she got hot. She had an older sister who was hotter than her. Uh, she sent a picture away to a movie magazine called Picture Play, and they picked her photo out, but she forgot to write her name on the back. So Picture Play, the next month, they're having a contest. Do you think you can be in the movies? Tulula thought she could be in the movies. The next month, they ran her picture in the magazine with, Who is this girl? And so she sent it back in. Uh, her father was rich, and they ad identified themselves as to who she were. Uh, I'll read from her biography, which is online. This isn't Wikipedia. I like facts. Uh, Tallulah was ecstatic, but both her father and grandmother had qualms about her going to New York. William Bankhead realized there would be no peace for anyone until Tallulah gave her consent. A consensus was finally reached when Tallulah's grandfather agreed to finance her way to New York, and Aunt Louise was act as chaperone. Well, she lived with her Aunt Louise, but as soon as she got to New York, of course, she went wild. Uh, she was hanging out uh, uh, with Barrymore and Anita Luz, Douglas Fairbanks. Um, she was hanging around with people. Um, she hung out with Estelle Winwood. If anyone remembers Estelle Winwood, uh, it was a British actress who was fantastic. Uh, ladies in Retirement. You may remember her in a movie called The Producers, the original Producers, not the second one. Um, not the Matt Broderick one, but the, uh, the Dick Sean one, if you'll pardon the expression. The Zero Mustel. At the beginning of the movie, when Zero Mustel is seducing all the old ladies, uh, Estelle Winwood is the one who goes, Oh, Rudolfo, you dirty pig. <laughs> and she has eyes on the side of her head like a pigeon and a really narrow face. And she goes, uh, Now, let's fool around. That was Estelle Winwood. Uh, she uh, did a bunch of stage plays. And then um, she learned to party, right? She went uh, at 18... Uh, the war was on. She went to Paris and volunteered for the Red Cross. Um, this is the best part. She moved into an apartment. She got out from under her Aunt Louise. She moved into an apartment with actress Bijou Martin, whose wild parties introduced Tallulah to cocaine and marijuana. 
Tallulah did abstain from drinking, only because she'd promised her father she would stay away from alcohol. Cheers. <laughs> In addition to her wild personality, Tallulah was becoming known for her wit. Some compared her to Dorothy Parker. Uh, Tallulah was indeed always talking. She'd been in New York in five years, but hadn't had a hit, blah, blah, blah. She went to an astrologer, and this is the best part. The astrologer told her, your future lies across the water. Go if you have to swim. Uh, three days later, a cable ride from a London di- uh, director who gave her a part in a play in London. She ended up staying in London for eight years and did 24 plays there. And this is the part of Tallulah Bankhead that will seem more modern than modern. And what makes her one of the greatest debauched and licentious stars in the history of the silver screen. Wearing a... <coughs> in her movie, in her first play, uh, she stepped on stage in the dancers wearing a buckskin dress, a feathered headdress, and her thick golden hair falling to her knees. Tulula was an exotic vision like they'd never seen before. Tulula's most fervent fans were young, working-class women. To them, Tulula was the embodiment of their fantasies, fashionable, beautiful, glamorous. The fans became a cult, copying and emulating her dress, hair, and personality. They waited outside the theater 48 hours in advance of her new Tulula opening. They attended her play several times a week. And, awesomely, when Tulula Bankhead would walk on stage, they'd yell, Tulula Hallelujah. And she would stop in the play and go, Thank you, darlings. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, she also, I'm sure, slept with a lot of the Tallulah, uh, what did they call them? They gave them a name that I forgot to mention, Gallery Girls. Uh, she had a giant female following in London and was herself all over the waterfront, as Tennessee Williams said. Um, in a foreign country and away from the prying eyes of her family, Tallulah's outrageous addicts grew even wilder. Uh, prom- this, is the, this is what I love about websites. Promiscuity came naturally to Tallulah. (laughs) Would anyone put it that way? Maybe someone who's never been promiscuous. Thank you. There was a girl in the back who just went, yes. Uh, I think many of us have been promiscuous in our lives at certain points. And uh, I don't think we've ever gone, you know what? What was it like when you were younger and you slept with everyone? Well, promiscuity came naturally to me. As soon as I saw a weenie or a thing that was round, I just jumped in it. <laughs> Boy, you could, sh- you could hold a sandwich open and I'd go crazy. <laughs> yeah, I guess it came naturally to me. <laughs> Promiscuity came naturally to Tulula, and she went to bed, and then this is the other best part of the sentence, the second part. She went to bed with anyone who was interested. <laughs> Well, considering there were lines of teenage girls outside her fucking dressing room for eight years in London, and everyone was interested, let's be honest, and, and she was funny as fuck, and she did coke, and she stayed up all night, and was wild as the fucking wind. And, as they once said, like the summer breeze, she blows. Uh... She had affairs with men, but none were lengthy. On the professional front, Tulula triumphed. 24 plays in London, blah, 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 blah. Then uh, they asked her to come to Hollywood. She, at that point, she had a giant flat going in London. She had bought a Bentley. She was living in Mayfair, and she was spending money wildly. And everyone that she hired that was a man was uh, basically there to get it going. And they all had to play bridge as well. Yes, I have a globe filled with booze. <laughs> and she... Uh, <laughs> so she split finally a cable came through she realized she was broke and she's going to go to Hollywood they offered her a bunch of money but she made a bunch of pictures in New York first and none of them they all died uh, but she was considered foreign this is when the talkies were coming out right uh, and 
Garbo and Dietrich and, uh, you know, some some actresses fell by the wayside, like Vilma Banky and whatnot, because they spoke crappy English. But Garbo and Dietrich spoke great English or learned to and were wildly exotic. And she got lumped in with that kind of ilk because she hadn't been in America for eight years. She, in essence, was a foreign actress from another country. And her voice, which you'll hear through the whole picture, uh, is a mixture of... Um, uh, Marianne Faithful and a Southern Belle. So everything's like this, darling, right? Uh, uh, Tallulah, uh, what does it say here? She, she opportunity to make $50,000 per film. $50,000. That's a lot of fucking money in those days. They, by the way, income tax had just started. That's how they got Capone. Uh, so she made a picture with Cooker called Tarnished Lady. That'll give you an idea of the kind of movie she was making. Tarnished. Uh, this is the best part. They finally sent her to Hollywood, right? And uh, where is it? God damn it. Where's that fucking quote? Uh, they go, why are you going to Hollywood? And she went, the only reason I went to Hollywood was to fuck that divine Gary Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> so on the train on the way to Hollywood... She's on the train with Doug Fairbanks Jr., who is married to Joan Crawford. And she turned to Joan Crawford and said, Darling, you're divine. I've had an affair with your husband. You'll be next. <laughs> ah, she, she adored Garbo, and she really wanted to meet her. So her and a bunch of friends were so excited, they couldn't stop talking about her. They, they made a, a bat that no one could mention Garbo's name, and if they did, they'd have to pay a dollar. On the way to the house to, to meet Garbo, they went to a party, and they were all in Tallulah's car. No one would say a word. Finally, Tallulah said, you're all so damn unnerved. You would think we're on our way to meet Greta Garbo. And she paid everybody a dollar. So she, she uh, uh, this is the story. Tallulah met Garbo, and the first thing she did was walk up to her and pull her eyelash. Garbo said, ouch. <laughs> And Tulula told her that she just wanted to see if they were real. By most accounts, they hit it off, although they were apparently just friends. And this is the, where I think it gets even more fascinating, because now we're into an unbelievable swirling vortex of lesbiana that is going to be exceedingly difficult to climb out of. Uh, they often played tennis together on Sundays. You see where I'm going with this. We're into an Elena Kagan morass of, oh, you don't know that she's gay. Just because she played softball in school and wears a Pat Carroll haircut doesn't mean she's gay. Thank you, darling. Please, laugh a lot. It's a comedy show, as I said. Tulula met the notorious writer Mercedes DeCosta, right? Now, if you know anything about Mercedes DeCosta, you know that she had an affair with every famous woman uh, of that age, the jazz age, and uh, who had been romantically involved with both Garbo and Dietrich. Surprise. And then on screen, when you watch Garbo and Dietrich, and Dietrich's wearing a man's outfit, and they're both smoking, and Garbo acts so detached, like she's vaguely interested in men. Uh, Tulula didn't care for her and told friends she looked like a mouse in a top coat. Uh, <clears throat> so they interviewed her in 1932. She was letting off steam because when she got to Hollywood, I forget which uh, producer she said it to. I want to say Mayor, but it might have been um, one of the... She said, um, how do you get laid in this fucking town? She thought Hollywood was boring compared to London. I'm serious about love. I'm damn serious. This is an interview from a magazine, picture magazine. I haven't had an affair for six months. Six months! 
Chulo, if there's anything the matter with me now, it's not Hollywood or Hollywood state of mind. The matter with me is, I want a man. <laughs> Six months is a long, long while. I want a man. Uh, so she fucked off again from Hollywood. She came back. She tested for Gone with the Wind. She was desperate to play Scarlet. She was a rich person from the South. Uh, she she read for Selznick. She did a fucking she she wrote him. Uh, she sent telegrams to Selznick's office. She fucking begged him. As you know, Selznick considered every actress in Hollywood uh, heavily. Paulette Goddard, who I think he was going with at the time, or was well, who wasn't Selznick going with? At four o'clock in the afternoon, Selznick went with a different person every day. So there you are. And as one actress remembered, they asked her, "Were you humiliated?" And she went, "No, I felt like Miss Fucking America." Um, <laughs> She didn't get the part, uh, and then um, she got married, which no one could fucking believe. The reason she got married was her father was elevated to Speaker of the House at the time. Exactly. And he didn't need a gay, coked-up actress running around. It would be like, and I don't know who to compare this to now, and I don't want to use the easy Amanda Bynes, Lindsay Lohan out on this one, but you get the idea. So, here we go. Now we get to this year and this picture. Um, this, she did Skin of Our Teeth on Broadway. Then Hitchcock brought her to Hollywood to make Lifeboat. It would be her greatest film success, earning her the New York Film Critics Award for Best Actress. She didn't get an Academy Award nomination even. Many fans today know Tallulah solely from Lifeboat. And that is kind of why we're showing it tonight. It's the only picture Hitchcock made for Fox. It's the only picture Tallulah made for Hitchcock. And it's her only great picture where she gets to be herself uh, in, a, in a version of herself and shit like that. Um, then later she went and did TV. Uh, let's talk about uh, this picture for a little bit. Uh, when they made this picture, it was made over on the Fox lot, and there was a giant tank. This movie takes, entirely, uh, takes place entirely in a lifeboat. They built a giant tank and filled it with water. Tallulah Bankhead did not wear underwear. In the morning, every day, she would climb a giant ladder into the tank, and the entire crew would look up her dress. <laughs> And give her a round of applause every morning. <laughs> she, the costumer came up. I'm trying to find it here. Uh, the costumer came up. Oh no, it was a. I think it might have been the cinematographer. Where is it? Uh, she was cast in the picture because Hitchcock wanted to use the most oblique, incongruous person imaginable to be trapped in a lifeboat with. <laughs> Uh, 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 uh. Oh, where is it? I'll have to make it up, but it's there. It's true anyway. Um, the, 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 everyone got hurt making this movie. Uh, it, they were in this bloody tank for weeks. Uh, Hume Cronin got his ribs cracked. Tallulah Bankhead got pneumonia twice while they were making this movie. They were in a giant pool of water all day, every day being splashed. Hitchcock bought her a, a dog. To, for being such a good sport and he'd already named the dog Hitchcock when he gave it to her <laughs> that makes me laugh so hard uh, here it is here's the Hitchcock quote uh, during filming the crew noticed that Tulula Bankett was not wearing underwear when advised of this Hitchcock said I don't know if this is a matter for the costume department makeup or hairdressing <laughs> Uh, 
Oh, those pre-2000 millennium days when people had hair <laughs> down there. <laughs> One last note, uh, then we'll fuck off into the... We'll show this picture. Get ready to cue it up if you're watching at home. I don't know if there's a version on YouTube you can, wa- uh, YouTube you can watch, but there might be a Netflix version somewhere. Uh, we'll take some questions after. Uh, just to hip you to the jive, uh, we're going to be in uh, London next week at the Soho Theater on the 18th and 23rd, uh, in Amsterdam on the 27th at the Danas Theater, on the 29th of June in Norway at the theater called Laughter. We come from the land of the ice and snow and the midnight sun where the hot springs flow. Do you know how difficult it's going to be not to sing that every second being in Norway? To drive our ships to new lands And to walk up to people and not go We are your overload uh, on the 3rd of July, we'll be at Bar Lubitsch over here in Western Hollywood. On the 9th of July, back there again. On the 18th of July, we'll be in San Francisco at the Punchline. The 25th of July, we'll be at the Galway Comedy Festival in Galway. On the 31st uh, to the 15th uh, we'll be of July to August, we'll be in Edinburgh at the Edinburgh uh, um, Fringe Festival. The 3rd, the 10th, and the 15th, we'll be performing uh, the podcast there. On the 6th of uh, uh, November, uh, November, the 6th of September will be in New Orleans, which I couldn't be uh, more excited about, uh, at a club called the Howlin' Wolf. Uh, and then we'll be in Denver uh, on uh, 9-11, or as the rest of the world calls it, 11-9. Um, if you go on the website, you can buy power sheets. The power sheets uh, either have Kittens McTavish on them or say Smartest Man in the World on the back page, as in Satchel Page, as in Don't Look Back, Something Might Be Gaining on You. When you wear these power sheets, you'll find two things. One, that you're as sexually alluring as Tulula Bankhead. And two, uh, that you'll never get pneumonia ever again because you'll be wearing a power sheath underneath. What is that? Oh, that's that. Uh, she did a TV show uh, later, or a radio show, but let's get to this part. One last thing, and then we'll fuck off. Uh, Dorothy Spencer uh, edited this movie for Hitchcock. Dorothy Spencer is one of so many women editors. As you know, uh, in the olden times, and much like today, when uh, only Catherine Bigelow seems to ever get nominated uh, for Best Director, and then doesn't get it, and shit like that, because Ben Affleck, as you know, has the craft. Um, <laughs> cheers. Uh, Women were often editors. Um, A few are mentioned here uh, from Daily Variety. Uh, Dee Dee Allen. Dee Dee Allen edited the movie we showed just two short weeks ago, Dog Day Afternoon. She also edited Serpico. Verna Fields, Thelma Schumacher, and you know she uh, edited every bloody Scorsese movie. Andy Coates and Dorothy Spencer. Well, Dorothy Spencer not only edited Lifeboat, um, she, she was born in 1909. She lived till 2002. Well done, Dorothy Spencer. She edited Stagecoach, uh, that immortal Ford classic, and My Darling Clementine, which if you've never seen that, is a superb movie, and my favorite Wyatt Earp movie. I love Tombstone just like you love Tombstone. I love Val Kilmer like you love Val Kilmer. I would have a Val Kilmer film festival if given a chance, and I would show you The Fucking Saint if I had to. 
Not tonight, thank fuck, but I'm just saying, I love Val Kilmer. There, I've said it. I'll sing it. I love Val Kilmer! Um, I don't care who fucking knows it. But Greg, he's all over the yard, and then there's movies like The Saint and shit like that. Precisely. Uh, I don't think there can be graduated madness unless you fucking make a movie with Mira Servino where you pretend to be blind and then get your sight back in the middle of the movie. <laughs> And as my, my wife's favorite scene in the movie where he's got his side back briefly and Mira Servina goes through a bunch of expressions so he can what, see what expressions are like. And she goes, you're like, really? This actually is supposed to have happened during humankind. Mira Servino. I know. Been a long time since a rock and roll. Dorothy Spencer edited Earthquake fucking A a movie that I saw when I was a teenager in sense around which meant they put some bass speakers under the stage and just cranked them up whenever anything started to shake what I remember was it cost $3.50 which we thought was an egregious punishing price to pay in 1974 however I've found that it's a bargain and that for $3.50, you can not only park across the street from this showing of Lifeboat, you can receive 50 cents back, which is a partial box of jujubes right here at the fabulous Cinna family. Uh, A couple of uh, Tallulah Bankhead quotes. She said, I'm pure as the driven slush. I'll come to make love to you at five o'clock. If I'm late, start without me. I've tried several varieties of sex. The conventional position makes me claustrophobic, and the others give me a stiff neck or a locked jaw. (laughs) If you really want to help the American theater, don't be an actress, darling. Be an audience. And then, fantastically, uh, these are my favorite ones. My father warned me about men and booze. But he, I'll do it in her voice. It's funner. My father warned me about men and booze, but he never said anything about women and cocaine. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Cholula Bankhead in Hitchcock's classic life. Uh, wow, that was a cracker. Uh, that was good, huh? Yeah. How about at the end... Uh, when we have to exterminate all of them and whatnot. Uh, I, I think uh, it, there was a fantastic amount of uh, her calling people different communist names during the first part of the movie. Uh, uh, she calls him Tavarish at one point, uh, and then uh, we have a new commissar and all that, uh, John Hodiak. Um, Canada Lee, the black guy in the movie, Steinbeck couldn't believe how racist um, Hitchcock was and wanted to reduce his character. Apparently, Canada Lee improvised a lot of his part, if you can believe that. Um, Walter Slezak is unforgettable as Willie. Um, when, when he comes on the boat and he's first speaking German and then later, what, what does she say? Uh, Herr Kapitan, and he, mm, and you're like, uh-huh. Uh, does any, do you have a microphone, Robbo? Robbo, have you? Well, Usually we do a little audience Q&A, trying to talk over the movie a little bit here, but Robinson appears to have drunkenly... There you are. Welcome back, baby. Hello. Um, 
like I said, even though they have the exterminate the Germans part at the end, and uh, the German is a duplicitous, uh, albeit unbelievably cunning and resourceful, uh, first of all, he's the only one who can navigate, he's the only one with any strength, and he's the only one with a fucking plan on the whole boat. <laughs> so that kind of belies the whole master race thing. Uh, later, uh, the scene when they, when they gang together and murder him is, is quite a revealing scene, and I think that everyone thinks the, thing, uh, the same thing when they watch that scene. What would I do? If I was on that bloody lifeboat, and that's where Hitchcock is uh, the greatest, because he really puts you in that place and makes you go, mm. uh, they're doing such an awful thing. And yet at that point, uh, although granted, Gus's monologue is so annoying at that point that you want to throw him over the side a little bit. <laughs> Enough with fucking Rosie. All right. William Bendix uh, is in a thousand movies and awesomely is in the worst baseball movie of all time, which is called The Babe Ruth Story, uh, where he plays Babe Ruth. And it is, uh, has as much to do with Babe Ruth as this movie did with Hitler's plan. Uh, it, uh, but but it is, is quite effective in this picture. Does anyone want to talk a little bit and then we'll, then we'll blow? We'll, we'll keep this short. They have another picture coming on. Rob will come over to you with the mic. I can't see you, nor can I hear you. I'm just hungry and tired and thirsty like they are in the boat. Is there anything more dangerous to be in a 40s movie than a jive-talking guy from Brooklyn? No, you're going to die if you're a hepcat, evidently. I like when he said, make with the Harry James. And what was the other one? Uh, what was it, too dirty or whatever? Uh, uh, what does he say to him, hip it up or whatever? Uh, yeah, boogie it up. Boogie it up, right? And then it's then he goes uh, that awesome Andrew Sisters don't sit under the apple tree with anyone. That was groovy pop from uh, 1944. Uh, you know, there's nothing more dangerous than being a hip cat from Brooklyn. Uh, inevitably, you're going to die. Um, uh, I, I love how this movie uh, uh, adheres to the all ethnic platoon. Um, but be, right, right. You know how in all the movies, O'Connor, go get Leclerc, get Kozlowski. We're gonna take the hill, right? Oh, and don't forget Washington if it's later. And um, but this one includes women, including this movie has murder, suicide, uh, it, really every type of mayhem in it. There's a, there's a mass gang mob murder in it. There's an insidious murder where he goes, go on, go to Rosie, and then just boom, pushes him over the side. Uh, there's infanticide. There's what was it? There's gangrene and amputation. They don't cannibalize one another. That part's awesome. We don't, we stop short of cannibalizing. Uh, that would have been what? Bait for the fish. Oh, bait for the fish. Good point. Um, and there's uh, jewelry aside at the end. Uh, her giant Cartier bracelet is sucked down by the fakest fish mat shot in the history of mankind on the end of a really wild rope. A anybody else in the moment? Rob, you have a mic there? Okay. All right, go on. Someone's in the back and they want to... Uh, it's, it's a really good World War II picture for that because World War II's boiled down to some real personal terms. There's two Germans... And there's uh, the rest of us, uh, including uh, we, we get the black guy. Uh, I believe Hume Cronin is supposed to be English in the movie. And yet his accent takes a train from Boston 
up to Canada and then over the ocean and then all the way back around again. At one point, he tries to go like this. And a lovely night out, lots of stars. <laughs> like, wow, you're not quite as cockney as you were just at the beginning of that sentence. <laughs> Who's got one there over there? Hi, Greg. It's Lewis. Hi, Lewis. Interesting, I was looking at some of the reviews before coming in. Me too. And some of the critics were uh, believed the movie was not hard enough on the German. Uh, they believed that they showed him in too good a light at some point. And someone asked Hitchcock about it, and talking about one critic, he said, Dorothy Thompson gave the movie three days to get out of town. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to ask you where you saw Earthquake. I saw it at the North Point. I saw it at the Belmont Theater in, uh, San, uh, in Belmont, California, yeah, on the border. Row in oh, yeah. No, the North Point was the most fabulous theater in San Francisco. Uh, I saw Apocalypse Now there. Uh, 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 with my wife, uh, she was only four or five years old at the time, and uh, very little understanding of the movie. But uh, that place showed all the first-run pictures in San Francisco. I remember seeing Ghostbusters there as well, uh, and and they showed a preview. I think for a, what, what was the picture where the guy's dead and they drag him around for three days? Weekend at Bernays. Oh no! Okay, fuck me. That was at the Royal in San Francisco. I remember they showed a preview for Weekend at Bernie's, and the teenagers ahead of us turned to each other and went, "I got to see that one." <laughs> when they were showing Bernie banging off all the buoys, uh, yeah, Earthquake was uh, superbly awful in so many ways. When Lauren Green plays Ava Gardner's father in a movie, the whole world's fucked up. What can you do? <laughs> I love that they thought they weren't hard enough on the Nazis with it. We murder a Nazi in one scene where all the women on the boat are fucking beating his ass and then the rich industrialist uh, Rit takes fucking Walter Slezak's shoe and uh, delivers the killer blow and we're not hard enough on him. But like I said, have you seen uh, Destination Tokyo or Operation Burma? There's, there's anti-Asian diatribes in those movies that'll make your flesh creep till this fucking day. But uh, that was us during the war uh, and shit like that. Uh, we're much different now. Now, we would never spy on each other or wage illegal wars or do anything like that. As you know, democracy prevailed uh, some 70 years ago and it's been smooth fucking sailing ever since then. We have a Negro president. <laughs> He doesn't have to sit in the back of the boat and have a family picture and look at God and shit. He can spy on us and fuck us over and send predator drones just like any white person. We've achieved a certain kind of equality and it's fantastic. This has been the Smartest Man in the World podcast, the Greg Proofs Film Club. This has been Lifeboat. Thank you very much for coming out. You've been awesome. My name's Greg Proofs. Thank you for coming. Next month, Le Samurai. I bid you good night. 